Okay, we're continuing our uh, study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we are in the last section of the Catechism that deals with prayer. So just as a reminder, catechesis is from the Greek word that, um, that means to teach. And it involves teaching the basics of the Christian faith. So that's what we've been doing all this time, studying the Catechism. We have already seen that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for the things that are agreeable to His will. And we have seen that we learn that we, what we should desire when we offer up our desires. What, what should our desires be? We learn what our desires ought to be from God's Word. And Jesus, on two occasions, catechized His disciples about prayer giving them the Lord's Prayer as a model for them to use, and also as a prayer that they could actually pray outright. So you can see it in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. From it, we learn the things that we ought to be including in our prayers. You know, there is the preface, our Father in heaven. And it's followed by six petitions. Verse 9, Matthew 6, uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then it has the conclusion, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Last week we looked at the first petition, hallowed be your name. We saw that this is a prayer, obviously that God's name would be hallowed, but what does that mean? Well, essentially, this is a request that God would be regarded as holy, that his name would be sanctified among his people, that we would see his glory as God, and that we would live for his glory. We saw Moses and different ones, you know, yearning to show, saying to God, show me your glory. This is the whole reason that we have to, to be, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever through knowing Him and, and seeing His beauty and His glory, His excellence. Today we come to the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which grows out of the first. And this is explained in question 102 of the Shorter Catechism. So let's confess the answer to that question together. Uh, question 102, what do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Now, my text for this sermon is primarily just simply the words of Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come. We already had an associated reading for this in, from the Old Testament in Psalm 110, where it shows us that Jesus was exalted to sit at God's right hand until what? All of his enemies are made his footstool. And now I want to have another scripture reading from Acts 13, 1 through 3, where we see a presbytery meeting in which the elders pray, the presbyters pray that God's kingdom would come. So in doing this, they were praying that God's kingdom would be advanced by them, actually. So listen as I read it to you. It's Acts 13, verse 1 and 2. 
Now, in the church that was at Antioch, which we think was probably at this time made up of multiple congregations, so it was a, a meeting of the elders here that came together. In the church that is at Antioch, there, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. I'm sorry, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word to us today. Well, let's begin with a basic question. What is the kingdom of God? You all know that a kingdom is a form of government where there's a king and subjects. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that has God as the king. There's a very real sense in which the whole world is the kingdom of God and always has been because he rules over all things that he has made and he will judge the world in righteousness as the only judge in the end. But when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it is usually talking about those people who willingly submit to him or at least confess that they do so as their king. In other words, they serve him as their supreme ruler in both heart and behavior. Now we could say it like this, the kingdom of God is God's righteous kingdom established in this sinful world. Satan came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and led them into a rival kingdom of rebellion, which is called the kingdom of this world. His very name means adversary because he raised him up. He, he, he raised himself up in an adversarial kingdom. He raised up an adversarial kingdom. He is also called the prince of darkness because his kingdom is built on lies and darkness rather than light and truth. And he is called the God of this world because by leading our first parents into rebellion, he led the whole world into rebellion since we all come from Adam. Adam, like Christ after him, was a federal head, meaning that as our human father, he represented the whole human race. So in other words, he spoke for us all when he rebelled against God and when he brought forth from him rebellion, he brought forth or from him rebellion was brought forth in all of his descendants unless they're delivered from this adversarial kingdom to the kingdom of Christ by God's grace. And that's where the kingdom of righteousness comes into the picture. In his unfathomable mercy, God came to call people out of the kingdom of sin and into his kingdom of righteousness. Because we were enslaved to the kingdom of Satan, his redemption or his deliverance is called redemption because we're brought out of slavery. And because the redemption is done by God through Christ and not by us, it is called a kingdom of grace. In other words, we don't escape ourselves or deliver ourselves somehow. But grace means that it's freely given to us through his mighty arm, not through any power or merit of our own. And because this kingdom has Christ as its king, 
It's called the kingdom of Christ. And because we are restored to God by him, it's called the kingdom of God. It brings us back to God and God's rule. So it has all kinds of different names, doesn't it? That, that can be employed. There's even more than that. But God has established this kingdom of righteousness in stages. So let's look at that just a little bit. Right after Adam and Eve fell, God came with the declaration that he would turn the woman and her seed against Satan. And so in other words, this adversarial kingdom would have adversaries to it. People that were, had turned against it to go back to God. They would rebel against Satan, the adversary, to turn back to God. The Lord described the seed of the woman as a people that would come from her, but then he spoke of one individual seed or one son in particular that would be the one who would redeem them. And, uh, that, and that son, of course, is Jesus Christ. God promised that this son would crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, that in the end he would, be, he would completely overthrow the kingdom that Satan, the adversarial kingdom that Satan had set up. So it started with God gathering or calling people out in, of the world into his kingdom with, a, with the promise that his son would come and would lead them into this kingdom, would establish this kingdom. And at that time, he pretty much gathered one family in each generation and left the rest of the world to grow up in their wickedness, which they did until the time of the great flood, when the wickedness was so great that God sent a flood to cleanse the earth of of mankind, except for the one family that he had preserved in each generation, which was then Noah and his sons and their wives. In this way, God showed how wicked the world had become by following Satan. He let it go in kind of a a, more of a, a free course, to see how far they would go in a sense. There was still restraint, but there wasn't nearly as much restraint as he brought in later on. And so we learn from that what we would be like if there was less restraint upon us. It was pretty bad. The believers up through the flood were the first stage then of God's kingdom. And again, it was just a family really in each generation. The second stage consisted of gathering the nation of Israel. It began with the calling of one man named Abram after the nations had been divided at Babel where they had a kind of a a rebellion. Okay, this was the people that had been left, that had come from Noah now. That was, was a new start, but already they were beginning to rebel. And after that rebellion, God promised to one of the families that he scattered to break up that rebellion that he called this one Abram and changed his name to Abraham and told him that his descendants would grow into a great nation that would be a nation of righteousness, that God would be their God and they would be his people in the world, distinctive from the other people, so that the seed of the woman would be found in this particular people. In other words, they would be a nation that was delivered from the kingdom of darkness and established in the kingdom of God, as the kingdom of God. God also promised that through them, the son that he had promised to the woman would be born. They would have the privilege of bringing that son into the world. That was their distinctive privilege. And that in that son, all the nations that had been divided at Babel, that were now left to go in their own way to a certain extent with a lot of restraint, 
that um, they would be, those nations would be brought out of this sinful world and into the kingdom of righteousness as well. In other words, God would bring people from all of those nations to be part of his kingdom. Now, it's interesting that God said all of that before he did it. And then he brought that to pass just the way he said, which, of course, you couldn't do unless you were God. (laughs) It's not something you could possibly predict or say would happen, that the sun would come and then the nations. I think this is one of the greatest apologetical things that we can bring forward to unbelievers. How do they account for this? How, How in the world, when there was just this one nation that was sometimes trampled under by other nations, that was going to be God's people and that would prophesy when, when the sun promised to came, would spread to the whole world. It's, it's marvelous prophecies. So the kingdom was established in this second stage as a second stage when Israel, Abraham's descendants, did indeed become a great nation of righteousness. Again, when it was first told them that they would, they weren't that at all. They were just, it was just one man and uh, his children. God called them out of Egypt where they had been in bondage after they had gone into bondage there. There was redemption then from Satan's dominion in Egypt. It was a picture of that. And God established them in the land that he had promised Abraham to be this kingdom of righteousness in the world. He gave them commandments to live by, had them build a house for him to show that he was among them how he was reconciled to them through rituals that he appointed and that someone must die in the place of guilty sinners. God eventually established them into a kingdom and set up a king over them that he anointed. Of course, that was uh, David, a man after God's own heart. And he made it clear that the son that he had been promising was not David, but a son of David that would come in future days. As great as the kingdom was under David and and Solomon, it was made clear that that was not yet the son that would reign forever and ever. And this brings us then to the third stage of the kingdom, which came when the son of David did come, Jesus Christ, who uh, in the fullness of time came forth. uh, It was about a thousand years after David, after that prophecy. He had been promised through many prophecies as he had been prophesied. A man came forth as a herald to announce that the kingdom of God was at hand before he began to walk about on the earth. People heard that. The Jews all heard that. They knew of John's ministry that way. So you see that in one sense, the kingdom had come with David, but in another sense, it did not come until the king came. Jesus himself, it came in a much fuller way in truth and completeness. The great difference was that now through this king, what was symbolized by David and the priests of Israel was actually done and accomplished by him. He was to make a real atonement for sin to replace the merely symbolic shadow atonements that were appointed before he came. He was to die on the cross and bear the curse for all his people so that they could be forgiven by trusting in him. He did all of this and God accepted his life and his sacrifice as perfectly righteous. A righteous kingdom, right? Established in a corrupt world. 
He raised him from the dead, showing that he accepted him and his sacrifice for the whole kingdom. By him, the righteous kingdom was truly established, not in a temporary way, but forever and ever. He did what was required forever. We read that in um, Psalm 110, that he was a king and a priest forever. And Jesus, having finished that work, ascended to heaven to reign until his enemies are brought under his feet. For he must reign, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, till he has put all enemies under his feet. That was in Psalm 110 as well, of course, the prophecy of that. So now we're in this fourth, what we could call the fourth stage. This could be divided in other ways. But now we're in what we could call this fourth stage of the kingdom, which is, not, which is yet to be completed. As all of the different stages had times when they were completed. So in this last stage that we're to earnestly pray that it would be completed, it will have come when all things are brought under his feet. And I'll explain what that means in just a moment. But uh, it is then that the kingdom will be fully established, that our prayer will be answered okay, when it's complete. So you see the point that, that the kingdom comes in stages. In one sense, the kingdom came when God called Adam and Eve after the fall. Okay, there were people in the righteous kingdom now. And that was when they first began to be a righteous people in a world that had become sinful. But in a fuller sense, it came when God established Israel as his kingdom. Then you had a whole nation that was subject to God in a kind of an actual kingdom. And still more fully when Christ came, for he was the true king of righteousness that God promised and that established the kingdom as a truly righteous kingdom. What a tremendous thing that by his work, there was now a righteous kingdom in a world that was ruined by, had been ruined by sin, a kingdom that was acceptable to God, a kingdom that we can be part of. But although the righteousness of that kingdom had been fully established, we do not, as we saw recently in Hebrews, yet see all things brought under his feet. The kingdom will fully come when everything is brought under Jesus Christ, the king. Let's look at three things that are involved in bringing all of Christ's enemies under his feet. First, all those who are given to him to be his people, subjects of this kingdom, will be gathered in. That is what Jesus is doing today through world evangelism. He is gathering into salvation all the people that the Father gave him. Some of them have not yet been born, but they will be. Jesus says that he will gather every last one of them and that they will hear his voice and that they will come to him. That is, they will hear his call to come to him for forgiveness of sins and they will respond. They will see that they are sinners that cannot save themselves and they will come to King Jesus who died on the cross as their only hope. They will repent. They will turn against Satan and return to God to be his people and to be saved by Jesus. Jesus will give them the Holy Spirit to free them from their rebellion and they will enter his kingdom. That's what he's doing now. That's what has happened to you if you are following Jesus today, if you are trusting in him for salvation. Either your parents brought you up in the faith and by God's grace you have looked to Jesus for as long as you can remember, or you are among many who came to admit that you are a sinner and turned to Jesus for salvation when you were older. God's Spirit opened your heart 
to show you your need of Christ and to enable you to repent and to trust him for salvation. You went from being an enemy of God to being a part of his righteous kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. Your subjection to him is not yet complete, but it will be if you're trusting in him now. He will bring you to that completeness. Now, trusting in Jesus for salvation is the best way to be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ. There is another way to be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ that is entirely involuntary. All of his enemies will be brought under his feet. Some will be brought under him in a very different way. Okay, we were enemies if we have believed that we're brought under by reconciliation and redemption. But others will be brought under not willingly at all. So the second way of being brought under his feet is to be cast out of the world by him. The penalty of sin is death. And those who will be cast out are already spiritually dead, as we all were, dead in their trespasses and sins. We all were until Christ saved us. They're living in rebellion, the rebellion that Satan began with Adam. And they don't ever depart from that, you see. So Jesus will not let them continue upon the earth in their rebellion. He brings them all to the grave. And for them, the grave is a harbinger of the second death. The second death is described in Revelation 20, verses, verse 14, where it says that these enemies were cast into the lake of fire, that death, Hades, was cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. In Revelation 21, 8, it says that they will have their part in the lake of, that, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's called the second death because it is here that Jesus puts a complete end to their rebellion in the earth. They're no longer able to live in rebellion in the earth. They're cast out. He casts them into this lake of fire so that they can not have rebellion, so that rebellion will no longer be in the world. Now, this is a terrible thing and a dreadful thing. Be sure that this is not to be your end. Unless you come to Jesus, this will be your end. God will not allow rebellion against him to remain in the earth. He simply will not. It's not acceptable. Of course, Satan will also be cast into the lake of fire. And this is the final crushing of the serpent's head. This will be the end when all things are brought under the feet of Christ. But there is a third way that all of Christ's enemies will be put under his feet. Okay, so the first way is by redemption. The second way is by casting out those who do not repent. The third way that Christ's enemies will be put under his feet is in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. It says, this is after verse 25 says, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. It says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, this is a loaded statement. The earth was made for us. And we were given dominion over it. Even though we were made of the dust of the ground, we were made to rule the earth for the glory of God. We're supposed to rule the earth. But when sin came, God turned things around so that the earth, instead of of us having dominion over it, it took dominion over us. Every one of us returns to the dust from which we were made. 
We all experience the rebellion of the whole creation, the rebellion of the creation against us. In other words, the creation doesn't obey us anymore. We don't have dominion over it as we were originally created. We have destructive storms. We have diseases. We have accidents. We have decay. We have crop failure. You name it. You know, all of these are various aspects of death that came. But again, the last enemy that Jesus will destroy is death. He is going to put an end to the curse for the kingdom of righteousness. And we, and we are going to be established in the new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of righteousness. There will be no more death at all in the world, not, not death or things associated with death. It will, be a, it will be new because death, the curse on creation, will be over. Jesus showed us his authority when he was here, did he not? How did he do that? He showed his authority over the created world by healing and by feeding the 5,000, by raising the dead, by giving sight to the blind. By calming storms, disorders, and things. He, he showed that it's kind of a, a forerunner of what was going to occur, kind of, a, kind of a harbinger. But at the last day, he will completely abolish death. It won't just be here and there as it was when he was here on the earth. He was wherever he was physically present. There was a storm, he would stop it. When someone came that had died, he would go to the funeral and it would end the funeral. The person would be brought to life again. But he didn't do that. All over the world. He didn't wave his hand over the whole world and do that because it wasn't the time. But at the last day, he will completely abolish death and we will all live with him forever, freed from the curse. So that's the final stage of the kingdom. His people will be gathered to him. Satan and all who are in league with him will be cast into the lake of fire. And through Christ, dominion over creation will be completely restored to the kingdom of righteousness. All things, even death, will be put under his feet. Then the kingdom will be fully established. That's what we pray for. It's obviously something that we should desire. And why would we not? Well, maybe we don't want God to reign. Maybe we think that would be miserable. Well, then we will have our part in the lake of fire with Satan and those who would concur. But we who know the Lord, this is our desire. That his kingdom would come is a desire that we ought to have and that we ought to pray for. Here are four reasons we ought to pray for it to come. First, we should pray earnestly for God's kingdom to come because the rebellion against God is so unjust. It's so wrong. It's such a shameful thing. God is our creator and a very gracious creator at that. And he is worthy. He is very worthy of the full devotion and obedience of all of his creatures And to see those intelligent creatures that he made, mankind rising up in rebellion against him, this ought to be disturbing to us. It's a grave injustice. Just as you would, people talk about being outraged by things. This is outrageous that there should be rebellion against God. We we need to see the, the horror of such a thing. And once we have learned more fully of God through redemption in Christ, we have seen, then we have seen his goodness in saving us. It ought to make it even more obnoxious that anyone would rebel against our God. 
This is the heart of the imprecatory prayers in the Bible. They are prayers that the rebellion would be brought down, that it would be brought to an end, that the Lord will not allow it to go on and on as it is doing now. They should be humble prayers because we know that we ourselves are in rebellion, but for the grace of God, having rescued us. And even so, we still find rebellion that is in our heart. But we need to pray and praying this prayer that 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 rebellion would be brought down and it, it should be obnoxious to us. That should be part of what drives us in this prayer. It is not right for those who are made in God's image to live the way we live. It needs to be stopped. Second, you should pray earnestly for God's kingdom to come because of the ruin that the fall brought to the world, the, the whole world that I spoke about before. What corruption it brought. And we see everything in the world that is, is very ugly and twisted from, from child abuse to sexual perversity that takes the gift of God and corrupts it. We see greed and we see hatred and we see murder and we see large numbers of people oppressed by one man that, that subjects them all to, to his own purposes at their own expense and makes them like disposable machines that he can just throw out whenever he's done with them. And what sorrow, rebellion, and God's curse against it brings. It brings sorrow into the world. We have sickness, we have wars, we have bereavement, we have hunger, broken relationship, injuries, wasting storms, famines, birth defects. These are all things that we should want to see ended. You see, it should motivate us to pray. How we should yearn and pray that Christ's kingdom would come, that sin and the curse would be abolished. Just what will it be like to have instead love and wholeness and happiness Peace, shalom, fully restored. That's what this kingdom of grace is all about. It's a wonderful thing. Pray your kingdom come. Third, you should pray earnestly for Christ's kingdom to come because it is such a gracious thing on God's part that there should even be a kingdom like this. Just what the privilege there is. If you find out that there's something wonderful that is completely unexpected and and uncalled for in a sense that is so wonderfully gracious, you, you, you should have a desire for that. To think that our God is restoring the likes of us, knowing that he does this, should fire our prayers to say, yes, Lord, do what you have promised to do. We have heard that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So, Lord, give us this kingdom. Do what you have said is your pleasure. Just think what Jesus has done to establish this kingdom laying aside his glory to become human flesh and then bearing the curse of his father for us, again, the likes of us, he be pleased with what he has done and let him know that you're pleased with what he has done by asking for the complete fruition of what he has done, the complete outworking of what he has done, that the kingdom of righteousness that he has established would fully come. Don't you want this gracious work to be complete? Then plead with him that it will be. Now, fourth, you should pray earnestly for Christ's kingdom to come because it pleases him for you to pray for it. How do we know that? Well, he tells you to pray for it. Right right here when Jesus teaches us this prayer. 
Matthew 6.10, Jesus says, pray that God's kingdom would come. He wants you to pray this. He wants it to be done. You, you can do it without any hesitation because you know that this is something he wants you to pray for. Do you, do you do that? He wants you to pray for your enemies and to love them. Jesus loved you when you were an enemy. So pray that Jesus would save them, that he would call those who are yet in rebellion out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his son. There is great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. Shall we pray for something that brings rejoicing to God in heaven and all the heavenly hosts? What a grand thing it is for that sinner. Do you not yearn for that sinner to have what you have in Jesus Christ? Surely you do. The Lord is pleased when you desire that and pray for that. So you see that we have many reasons to yearn for the kingdom and to pray for this kingdom. We could add other reasons too, but we will stop with that. So you see then, now I want to show you what praying for this kingdom involves. Okay, what are some of the things that we are to pray for in particular under this general prayer that God's kingdom would come? Remember, these are these headings in the, in the Lord's prayer represent whole categories of things we pray for that have many different component parts. So I'm going to follow the catechism here in answering that. First, we should pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. The first thing that God promised when we fell was that he would put enmity between us and Satan. It it was right to want Satan and all who are aligned with his cause to be utterly brought down. Some modern Christians think that such prayers are not appropriate for Christians. You know, even the Trinity hymnal that we use in the gathering music, it actually systematically excluded those kind of prayers. In this, if you look at the Psalms, many times when there's something like of that nature, praying for the destruction of enemies, they take that line out. They did that deliberately. This is distorted thinking. In the New Testament, we see that the whole we see the whole church rejoicing. When Babylon is brought down, they erupt with their hallelujahs. This means that it is right for us to pray that wicked kings and wicked nations and wicked ministers who lead people astray, even those who are baptized, will be thwarted and brought down. Such prayers should not be prayed out of a selfish vengeance, but out of love for Christ and his kingdom and his people and for vindication of the Lord. Certainly we ought to pray for repentance of our enemies for whom it is possible, but it is not possible for Satan and for those committed who have committed the sin unto death. And so we pray that Satan would be destroyed. There's no redemption for him. And it is very proper for us to pray that the Lord would stop them and frustrate them, the, the wicked purposes that they have. We are not as private individuals to oppose them with arms, but we are to commit them to God in his judgment, which may be at times administered through the civil magistrates in the world. It's not that there will never be arms used to bring destruction to God's enemies, but we don't take that on as a vigilante. We do it when a nation rises up in righteousness, perhaps. For example, if we should have a godly government that opposes, opposes blasphemy and abortion and child abuse and slavery and adultery, we should pray that they will have great success in bringing those things down. 
bringing, and bringing justice to those who commit such atrocities. Praying for God's kingdom not only involves praying that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. Second, we are to pray that the kingdom of grace would be advanced. Okay, following the catechism here. So we pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace would be advanced. In other words, the gospel will go forth and that many people would be saved. As the catechism says, we should pray that ourselves and others will be brought into it and kept in it, in in the kingdom of grace, brought into that kingdom and kept in it. But what does it mean to pray for ourselves and others? Well, by praying for ourselves to be brought into the kingdom of grace, it means we're praying for the church, okay, for God's professing people. We're praying that our brothers and sisters in the church truly would know the Lord Jesus in a saving way. There, There are many that don't. So we're praying that we and our children and all the people that are baptized all over the world, that they would know him in a saving way. Not that we are to be suspicious of everyone, but we know many churches where the gospel is compromised. And we know many professing Christians who do not have solid professions of faith. So we should yearn to see them with Christ on the day of his return. Remember how Paul talked about that. I yearn to see you, my brethren. I yearn to see you with Christ on the last day. Talked about that in Thessalonians when, he, when Christ returns. Pray that they will be found in him, not having their own righteousness that will leave them condemned, but having the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And of course, in praying for others to be brought in and kept in, we're praying, we are to pray also for those who are outside the church, or praying for the others to, to be brought in who, who are, don't even profess faith. Some of them are in apostate churches and do not even profess the gospel, and we need to pray for them. Paul prayed for the Jews that did not receive the Messiah as outsiders that he prayed would be brought in. But of course, many people are not in the church at all. They're following false religions and idols, atheism, or whatever. And we should pray earnestly that they too would repent and come to Jesus Christ. So ourselves and others, the church and those outside the church, Now, it's important for us to know that because I've heard people say before, well, you know, God's sovereign election, he's chosen who will be saved. Should we pray for unbelievers to be saved? And yes, indeed, we should. So you see then we pray for both those that profess and those that don't. And if you're praying for the kingdom to advance in this way, it follows that you will also pray for the means of its advance. So what do we find in the scripture? Well, we find prayers for the preaching of the gospel. Paul says, pray for me as he preaches. We need to do that. Pray for the raising up of faithful men that will preach the word, the uh, laborers that will go forth, for ministers and those who hear to be connected. We, you know, the, they, they would be brought to people that need to hear the gospel, that the two would come together. We, we've seen how Satan tries to keep ministers and those who need to hear the gospel apart from each other. We should pray for missionaries to be provided and to be kept safe, to go into the world. We should pray that the, the church would pray that we would be burdened for this. We should pray that people would receive the word, that their hearts would be open to the word. We should pray that the civil magistrate would protect and allow the word to be freely preached and also that they would make and uphold just laws that represent God and his law. Because that makes a difference. When people are shown right and wrong through the laws of the land, 
it helps them to have a greater sense of right and wrong, and then they see better their need of the gospel. So we pray toward those kind of things. We don't pray that they'll be all corrupt and bad. We, we pray that you know, we want to see righteousness brought out in every way. We should pray that Christians would set a good example before the world. Uh, Christian love is a powerful testimony to Christ. We need to pray that Christ and his power will be seen by our love for one another. Early church was so exemplary in that way. We should pray that churches would be planted and that they would not be riddled with division, that there would be finances for them and support for ministers and for the sending of missionaries. We can pray that God will so work in his providence that people will be brought to repentance, that he would use bereavement to cause people to see that they must die and be brought to judgment, that he would use storms and troubles to awaken people of their need of Christ that he would continue to testify of his goodness by providing food and good things to us in the world, blessing and gladness. There are so many things that we can pray for that are related to praying for the kingdom to come, to be advanced and ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it. But we must not stop there. Let us go on to pray, as the Catechism says, thirdly, that the kingdom of glory will be hastened. Do you know the distinction between the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory? It is this. The kingdom of grace refers to the kingdom that now is. Okay, the, the kingdom of Christ that now is. Advancing, but not yet brought to perfection. The kingdom of glory refers to heaven, which is when we're in the presence of God. That's what heaven is, wherever that be. When Christ returns and casts out Satan from the earth into the abyss. And when he gives his people resurrected bodies with which they are able to stand before God without the curse and with perfect holiness and sin no more. It's right for us to pray for heaven. Really, we don't sometimes think about heaven enough. We don't yearn for heaven We should be yearning for Christ to appear in all his glory. We should be praying for all things to be brought under his feet and for death to be abolished. We should pray for the healing of our diseases. Yes, for patience in them now, if we have to endure them for a time, but for healing for all of them because it will come. Ultimately, we should be praying for the complete deliverance from all affliction and all infirmities that Christ Christ has promised us that deliverance. So the final goal is for all things to be brought under Christ. This is the yearning prayer that every believer should have. Jesus says, surely I am coming quickly. And the reply of the Christian heart is, even so come, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please stand and let's pray for this right now. What else could we desire, Lord, seeing that you have brought a kingdom of righteousness into a world that is full of sin and corruption and death and oppression and all kinds of miseries? What else should we desire but that your kingdom would come, that it would be brought to completion? Father, we pray that we would not be as we once were in Adam, where our rebellion is so great 
that if you're going to be the one reigning, we don't even want that. That we'd rather have it like it is than for you to be the one that is reigning because of our wickedness, our rebellion, our hatred. We pray, Father, that you would deliver us from that. How could anyone not want this kingdom that you have promised? It's only, Lord, because we're so twisted and warped and corrupted by sin. Father, we pray that as we see our world today with so many people glorying in rebellion, it's even people celebrating rebellion, celebrating, defying what you have called for, what you have commanded. It is great wickedness. And we pray, Father, that you would have mercy upon us and you would deliver us from that kind of rejoicing in iniquity. How in the world could people rejoice in iniquity? It's because we have fallen. Father, we know it too well in our own lives. And we pray that you would forgive us and that you would continue to purge us, Lord, of such corruption and that we would become more and more a holy people. We look so forward to the time when Christ will reign without any rival, when everything will be brought under his feet. The earth will be so beautiful in that day. There will be nothing like it, O Lord, and how glad we will be. We marvel to even think about it. We can't even fathom such a place. But we pray, Lord, that you would hasten it, you would bring it quickly, because you have promised that you will bring it. Lord, we are here before you. We ask you to grant us patience, though, as we labor to bring that kingdom by working to see people brought into the kingdom of grace, brought into it and kept in it, and Satan's kingdom more and more destroyed. We pray, Lord, that we would see your hand and that you would bless us and use all the means of grace to hasten that work, Lord, to further that work along, that your word would would speed forth, that it would go swiftly, and that it would prosper and be blessed. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray that we would hang on to that hope when the world tries to destroy that hope and make us think that it is but a fantasy. We know that the world's hopes are the fleeting things. They are the things that are only short and that will not endure. But the kingdom of righteousness and Jesus Christ will endure forever and ever. And we praise you, Lord, forever is such a long time. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.